to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. You'll find this on pages 66 on to 1657. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 17. Here now, the word of God. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, Things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're continuing, as you know, in the series on the book of Revelation. We've already considered chapter 1, which reveals the glorious Lord, the, the Jesus, as he rules in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And then as we come into chapters 2 and 3, we see these seven letters, these seven epistles, one to each of seven churches in Asia Minor, or the province of Asia, what today we would call the country of Turkey. Each of these letters picks up on one or more aspects of the Christ featured in chapter 1. And so you'll see as we go through these letters, just keep in mind how the Lord Jesus was revealed back in chapter 1. And we're going to see, we're going to see themes from how Jesus was revealed in chapter 1 in terms of what he is saying directly to these churches. So far, we've had letters to two churches, Ephesus, which had lost its first love, but actually had left its first love, had abandoned its first love. And what a challenge that is to you and to me to make sure that we have not lost our first love. And then Smyrna, which was encouraged in the midst of great persecution. And uh, this, of course, is 
one of those, one of only two of these churches where Jesus does not say, I've got something against you. And so Smyrna then is the first of those two where Jesus only has commendation or praise for them, as well as, of course, admonition and so forth, to keep on doing what they are doing. And now we come to Pergamos, or Pergamum, either way. And actually, we're, as, as we're in, in children, you can look, and I'm sure Miss Amy will help you later, you can look on a map of uh, Turkey or look on a map of the, uh, in the back of the Bible or whatever, you can see these, uh, these seven churches. I had said before, it's kind of like going clockwise around a circle, sort of like that. Actually, Pergamos is, is, uh, is not exactly on the circle there, so it's a little bit to the, to the north-northwest, so it's a little bit outside of, if you think of like a clock, it's a little bit outside of where the 11 o'clock position would be, but, you, but it's up in that direction. Now, so we look at the city of Pergamum, or Pergamos, one can trace its superiority and its headship in this part of Asia from 280 CBC, 282 uh, years before Christ, 282 BC, <coughs> when one leader threw off his allegiance to the king and founded the kingdom of Pergamum. <coughs> its fortunes fluctuated for 150 years and then Attalus, that's A-T-T-A-L-U-S, Attalus, Attalus III gave the kingdom to Rome, which formed it into the province of Asia. And Pergamon, Pergamos, was the official capital of this province. One commentator, a man by the name of Ramsey, noted that this city gave the impression of a royal city with a huge rocky hill on which it stands dominating the plain below, the plain of what is called the Caicos Valley, C-A-I-C-U-S, the Caicos Valley. Now in terms of the religious life of the city, Pergamos was the first city in Asia to have two and then three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperors. So the first one to have two, and then finally three temples dedicated to the worship of Caesar, of the Roman emperors. There are also four gods, four patron gods affiliated with the city. Zeus, you probably heard of Zeus, one of the major gods, Z-E-U-S, Zeus, the savior. And Athena, H-E-H-E-N-A, Athena, the one who, who bore victory, those two gods reflected the Greek influence. There were two other gods that were more native gods, Dionysus, Dionysus, was the god of the royal family, it was actually associated with a bull. So Dionysus was called the god bull. A religious society called the ox heads practiced that religion. 
And then the other one I want to call your attention to is one called Asclepius. I'm going to spell this for you. A-S-K-L-E-P-I-O-S. Asclepius. A-S-K-L-E-P-I-O-S. And Asclepius was associated with a serpent. Now, coins would show an emperor, coins, just like we have coins, we put, you know, figures on the coins. Well, coins back then would show an emperor adoring this deity, this god, Asclepius, which was a serpent, a snake, that was wrapped around the sacred tree. Another coin, another coin, displays a snake crawling out of the mystic box of Dionysus. The reverse had two serpents intertwined in their lower parts and their heads erect. Something like that? Actually, that's sort of what you find in terms of some of the, some of the imagery we have in terms of healing today, don't we? You ever seen that? That's where it comes from. Did you know that? That's where it comes from. When you see a doctor or uh, you know, EMT or whatever, that sort of image, that's where it comes from. It comes from this pagan god, Asclepius. One commentator said that Pergamon offered the paraphernalia of an alternative society. It offered the machinery of state, the government. It was the capital of the province. It also offered, however, the healing ministry by the priests of the god serpent. Isn't that interesting? The healing ministry by the priests of the god serpent. You know, the, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with this. The, the picture of the serpent is the picture of the devil, right? We already read Genesis 3 today. And the devil is not all-powerful, but the devil can do wonders at times, healing wonders, you see? And so there was healing ministry by the priest uh, who were devoted to Asclepius, to this picture of the god serpent. So you've got the government, the, the capital, you've got this false worship, including a healing ministry that might impress the people, but you also have, we could say, schools, universities, an enormous library, the term parchment, which is used like for a, like, uh, for a diploma, it's on parchment, the term parchment comes from the word Pergamon, or Pergamos, and so it had a huge library, learning, education. And all these three things now are mixed together in that city of Pergamon. Now not much is known about the church here in Pergamon. Not much is known about it. But from this passage we know that it faced twin dangers. Number one, persecution. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. Persecution but there was another danger that it faced, and that was seduction, being seduced to go astray, being seduced, at, just like 
just like Balaam, the false prophet, taught the wicked king Balak to try to seduce the children of Israel uh, in the book of Numbers. Well, with that, then, as a brief introduction, let's also look at the introduction of the text. It says here in verse 12 to the Pergamos, notice that Christ instructs John to write, put it in writing. The angel, I suggested, could mean messenger, but it could be, it could also be corporately the church's leaders, elders, presbyters. Notice the picture of Christ that is presented here. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now that's not a picture that we often think of in terms of Jesus, right? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But actually, notice this picture. A sharp, pointed, double-edged sword. And the sword here, children, the sword, sometimes, you know, you, you see a movie and you see a a sword fight, or you see uh, like fencing, you know, fencing, a long, narrow sword. That's not the sword. This is almost like, a, more like a machete, if you will. So it's a, it's a double-edged cut and thrust sword that would have been used by the Roman armies. Where is that sword? That sword comes out of Jesus' mouth. What is the meaning then? The meaning is that Jesus has the symbol of absolute authority. He is the one. See, he's challenging the Roman Empire, isn't he? He's challenging them by this picture. He's saying, oh yes, the Roman soldiers have their own swords. They could be very fearsome, those soldiers. But actually, Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the one who is infinite in power. I am the one to whom all authority has been given. And I am the one who, just by my very speech, just by my very declaring what shall be, by my sovereign rule and sovereign control, I am the one who actually has the sword and is able to slay all of my enemies. So Jesus then has this symbol of absolute authority. Jesus, just like in Rome, the sword would be used in battle or sometimes to execute people. My friends, Jesus is the one who is invested with the power of life and death. That's what's being shown here. As a matter of fact, in the royal city, in the seat of authority, in the capital of the province of Asia, it is there that Christ wields the power of life and death. People may have imagined that power to be in the proconsul or like the governor of the province. But actually, my friends, even the proconsul was controlled by Christ. And so as we look at this passage, then we want to do it with this theme. Christ warns the church that is lax or loose in discipline. Christ warns the church that is lax or loose in discipline. And so that warning will come later as we look at this, Lord willing, next week. But just now, 
He begins with encouragement, as he does with all of these letters. He begins with the positive, he begins with encouragement. Notice what he says, verse 3, I know your works, and I know where you dwell. So first of all, then, notice the encouragement in terms of the danger that they face. They, they are facing danger, but Jesus says, I know where you dwell. Did you know that God knows your address? God, children, God knows your address. He knows where you're living. He knows everything you do. Unlike Santa Claus, he really knows. And he knows particularly what a, whatever danger you may be in. I know where you dwell. Notice what he says. Where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Now the first thing we want to note here then is that Satan is a real personal devil. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. There are people, there are churchmen who deny that Satan is a real personal devil. Don't believe such people. They are telling lies from the devil. He is and, and the accuser of the brethren. He is the slanderer. He accuses. That's the, the notion of, of his being Satan. He is the prince of darkness. He is the prince of this world. And he is the prince of the power of the air. And why is it, my friends, that Pergamum, then, is said to be where Satan's throne is located? First of all, this idea of throne points to power, to dominion, to authority. And the city, you remember, was the administrative capital of the province. It is where the proconsul would decide matters of life and death. And it would also have been the place from where the persecution of believers was directed. It was the capital, just like we have Washington, D.C. today as the capital. And much of the persecution in our country today of Christians is being directed by the bureaucracy, by the bureaucrats, by the politicians in Washington, D.C. And so it was 2,000 years ago. And the chief seat of state religion was located there, the worship of the emperor. But also the serpent worship that we've already mentioned, the serpent worship, very definitely pointed to the one who was the deceiver and the murderer from the beginning, the serpent, just like in Genesis 3, the one who lied to Eve, the one who deceived Eve, the one who did so because he hates God and he hates mankind. And so the serpent worship then, that very worship very definitely pointed to Satan, who is the deceiver and the murderer, and the liar, as Jesus said from the beginning. And so first of all, then, we see the danger. I know. I know where you dwell. Indeed, it's where Satan's throne is. And he's saying this, Jesus is saying this, in order to encourage us that he knows the danger that they were in. 
But secondly, he also knows their faithfulness. Notice what he says here, and verse 13, And you hold fast to my name. And you hold fast to my name. The name of Christ can bring persecution. People cannot tolerate it. They cannot tolerate the name of Jesus. But yet these Christians in Pergamum held fast to that name. They grasped it. They clutched it. They held on to it as it were. And furthermore, they did not deny my faith. Now notice the word faith here is being used in the objective sense. In other words, the it was like the faith. That is to say, the beliefs, the set of beliefs, the doctrines, the things that we confess about Jesus. They did not deny, Jesus said, my faith. They did not deny the gospel. They did not deny who I am or what I did. These early believers held on to the apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles. They held on to the doctrines of grace. They held on, and they did not deny that. And so Jesus commends them for their faithfulness. But then he also commends them. He also encourages them in terms of not only knowing the danger and also their faithfulness, but now thirdly, he encourages and commends them in terms of their martyrdom, their martyrdom. Now, actually, there's one particular martyr that is mentioned here, Antipas. It's an actual, there's an actual fellow by this name. You know, as we look at church history, there are many martyrs we can think of. We can think of Justin Martyr, for example. Uh, we can think of, um, um, of uh, John Huss, who was burned at the stake uh, by the Roman Catholic authorities. Uh, we can think of the five missionaries who, in Ecuador in the 1950s, were murdered by the Aka Indians. We know their names. And so we know the name of this fellow, Antipas. And so he's, he's being held up, as it were, as this one particular individual. He's referred to, uh, Jesus refers to him as my witness and my faithful one. But let us be clear, Antipas was not the only martyr. He was one of the many who were killed by Satan and his followers. And furthermore, we need to know, remember this is the capital? This is the, where the administration was, where the state apparatus was. The deaths were not merely of local people. It's quite likely that Christians were hauled to Pergamum for execution. They were hauled to Pergamum for execution. But don't forget that the one who has a sword coming out of his mouth is the one who takes note of those who kill his people. And God is, God is the one who is a vengeful God and he will pay back. If Christ takes note, he knows all of these things. 
So let me ask, by way of observation, where is Satan's throne today? Where is Satan's throne today? Well, there are many dimensions of Satan's throne, Satan's rule. We could think of Islam. We could think of Islam, the Muslim movement. Now, not every Muslim is uh, is into uh, uh, the kinds of activities that other Muslims are into. But nevertheless, as a religion, it is very clear that Islam is of the devil. Islam, what Muhammad, the so-called vision that he had, undoubtedly was a satanic vision. And you see this in terms of the actions of the prophet Muhammad, in terms of the people that he killed, in terms of the, uh, the hundreds of people that he killed, and indeed, in terms of uh, even uh, the way that he treated women, even young girls, for example. But we're seeing that, of course, played out then in terms of Islam in numerous countries. I mentioned in the prayer today about Nigeria. Thousands, over the last several years, thousands, like maybe 40,000 Christians have been slaughtered in Nigeria because of Muslims killing them. We could point to other places in the world as well. And so Islam. There's another dimension to his rule, and that is communism. Communism. And we're seeing this, of course, played out in our society today. The threat of communism in our schools, in our government, in the media, and so forth. This is a totally false understanding of the way the world should operate. And it is totally in opposition to Christ and his rule. And so Satan's throne we see manifest in terms of communism in numerous places. We could think of the New Age movement. The New Age movement. And uh, again, the, the sort of mysticism, if you will, the idea of, of, um, of not relying upon the true and the living God, but rather our own ideas about God, and even trying to evolve, perhaps, into a higher consciousness. So we see the New Age movement playing itself out. And my friends, we also see it in terms of the radical homosexual movement as well. The radical homosexual movement. Just, and, and of course, we, we think of this historically in terms of San Francisco. But let's be very clear. We see this in Atlanta. The drag queen shows at the mayor's office. The drag queen shows at the mayor's office and in the libraries, and in the schools, and so forth. And this is all part of where we see Satan's kingdom, Satan's power being manifest. But we can also do what the Protestant reformers did, and identify Satan's throne with the papacy, that is to say, with the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope was regarded by the Protestant Reformation as being the Antichrist. And today we are seeing in Roman Catholicism the continued denial of the Gospel of Christ, con 
condemning those of us who hold to the true gospel, the continued denial of the gospel of Christ, the continued persecution of true believers around the world, and even joining with Islam and communism and other such movements, particularly under this present pope. And because of the, the denial of the gospel, this is why the Protestants, Luther, Calvin, and others, identified Satan's throne with the pope or with the papacy. Well, I have two points of application today. The first is this. Be prepared for persecution. Be prepared for persecution. Be prepared for persecution. In 1 Peter 4, verse 4, we read, In regard to these, that is to say, in regard to how we used to walk, lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, in regard to these, they, that say the world, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. In other words, because we don't go along with the party, because we don't run in the same riot of affections and so forth, go along with the world system, we are subject to persecution, not because we're troublemakers, but because we don't go along with those, with all these wicked manifestations. One commentator, Wilcock, put it this way, quote, a self-centered, permissive society, society where anything goes, a self-centered, permissive society can be curiously hard on those who refuse to go along with it. The gay streets of Vanity Fair can still lead to prison and a stake. Either you buy or you burn. That reference to Vanity Fair, remember this is the reference to the Pilgrim's Progress, and he, he, is, he goes into this wicked city called Vanity Fair, where all the entertainment, all the things of this world are, are there trying to, to allure him. And of course, if, we, if you reject that, if you don't buy what is for sale in Vanity Fair, the world is not going to praise you. The world is going to hate you. And if it can, will persecute you. That's why Wilcox said the gay streets of Vanity Fair can still lead to prison and a stake. They'd be burned at the stake. Either you buy or you burn. Be prepared for persecution. But number two, hold fast to Christ's name. Hold fast to Christ's name. That's what he says here. And you hold fast to my name. You hold fast to my name. Hold fast. To Christ's name, but not as if it's some magical mantra, not as if it's some magical formula. Yes, his name is precious, but that's not the point. To hold to Christ's name is to believe in him and to embrace his person and work. And so, my friends, I urge you today, believe in Jesus and who he is 
and what he has done for you at the cross. Hold on to Jesus and don't let go. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And now, our Father, we pray that thou wouldst be pleased to bless this message and enable us, O oh Lord, to be those who would love Christ, those who would love his name, and those who would hold fast to his name and all that it stands for. And so give us the grace, O oh Lord, to resist the temptations of this world, not to buy what Vanity Fair is selling but to resist, even to the point of persecution or even death, knowing that it is the Lord Jesus who does have the sword coming out of his mouth with which to slay all of his and our enemies. And so, Lord, be pleased to give us that grace to love Jesus and to hold fast to him. We pray in his name. Amen.